Hello and welcome. Uh, this is a new podcast that we're calling The Album Years. I am Stephen Wilson and my co-host of these podcasts is going to be Mr. Timothy Boness, my long-term partner in the pop sensation that is No Man. Occasionally we make some music of our own, but generally speaking, we talk about other people's music, don't we? That's what yeah. kind of... I think it's fair to say that we, you know, it's the thing that we love to talk about more than anything else is as music nerds, if you like, is the history of music. And we're also nerds in the sense we love the context. So we love to know exactly when something was released and where it came in the particular career trajectory of an artist and all that stuff that only nerds are interested in. So this is basically a show for nerds. And we've called it The Album Years because what we're going to do is we're going to focus on one year per episode and we're going to talk about albums that were released during that year not necessarily recorded that year but they were they must have been released between January the 1st and December the 31st of that year and I think the other reason why we thought it was quite a nice title Tim and you, you kind of suggested this is that there's a kind of period I suppose in time that you can refer to as being the classic years of the album i mean i think it's yeah. fair to say that ended some time ago so when when would you say that would be for me the rock album years although there were fantastic albums before this i kind of see it historically there's a nice thing if you take 1967 sergeant peppers even though it's not my favorite beatles album there's something about the package of it the theme of it that kind of ushers in the album as a serious art form for right. rock and pop and of course and most importantly it was the year i was born uh, well, exactly. I think you were born, yeah, probably on the day that the album and I don't was think that's, really fully realised. And I don't think that's uncoincidental, is it? Let's face it. So no, yes, no, I mean, you're I, right. You're right. I mean, the first Hendrix album, the first Floyd album. There are so many landmarks that year. I mean, I would, I would maybe say, I, I would be more general. I'd say mid '60s because you've got albums like, you know, Simon and Garfunkel's, you know, early album '65, '66. You've got Pet Sounds, yeah, yeah. which I think is '66. I think it's '66, isn't it? So, yeah. uh, so you've got, and you've obviously got the the classic Dylan albums. Yeah, yeah. So I would say mid '60s, and I would probably say up to the end of. The, basically up to the end of the 20th century. That, for me, is that yeah. that period. I don't know if you agree with me or not. That th period of 35 years or so is like the classic years when the album really became the premier yeah. means of a musician to express themselves. I think the reason I use Sgt. Peppers is partly because it was one of the first albums where the package was all important. Obviously, you've got the Velvet right. Underground with Andy Warhol, which was sort of late 66 as yeah. well. So, you know, I know it's arguable. And, you know, Zappa in 66, you know, Verve Records, when right. they had Zappa and Velvet right. Underground, right. Um, were clearly thinking in more conceptual terms. But I suppose in the public imagination... The album years began on your birthday. That, uh, my, actually, on my birthday. Yeah, that, that, yeah, was, yeah. that, <laughs> that was the year the, the idea of the album as an art, as a kind of higher art form kind of really came, came into its own. I, I, would, I yeah. would agree with that, yeah. And interestingly, you mentioned the Beatles there. And another thing I want to say before we actually start to talk about uh, the year that we've chosen for this first episode, you mentioned the Beatles. Now, we're not going to be talking much about the Beatles in terms of their albums themselves. And uh, just to explain why, we've kind of discussed this and we decided, or to be fair, this is, this is what I suggested and Tim just kind of gone along with it <laughs> begrudgingly. But I, I personally didn't, I personally don't particularly want to talk about the established canon 
of classic albums. So, um, you know, there are there are many albums that that have been discussed and discussed ad infinitum. Sgt. Pepper is one of them. And I personally don't feel like there's any need to talk about these albums anymore. There's nothing more to say about Sgt. Pepper or the the classic Beatles albums, unless it's in the unless it's in context of how it affected some of the other musicians that were around at the time. And of course, the Beatles did influence mm. almost everyone. So we will, by necessity, be talking about the Beatles. But we're going to try and pick albums that perhaps you may not know. Yeah, uh, there I mean, are obscure albums like Simply Red Stars, that kind of thing, yeah? You jest, of course. But, yeah. you know, who knows? A bit, but, but I think another thing we are going to do is perhaps bring in some of those albums that are not very fashionable and maybe make a case for them perhaps being listened to again, you know, being taken more seriously. So that's something we're going to do. But we're also going to talk about very obscure albums or maybe sort of, you know, albums that are not obscure, that were hits at the time, but maybe have not, for whatever reason, become elevated to that kind of the higher echelons of the classic album canon. Well, I think it's that thing, isn't it? You know, when you're reading music books, in a sense, the music book that works is the one that kind of gives you a new insight into something and makes you want to listen to that music again. And I guess that's what we want to do here, that to a certain extent... One, translate our enthusiasm in some way, and another, hope that that translates to other people, you know, that maybe they're going to listen to an album differently or an album for the first time. Um, so um, that said, I think we can maybe we can maybe move on and, and actually talk about our first year. Now, just one more thing I want to say before we do is that we're not allowed to play any clips from any of the albums we talk about. So um, you won't hear clips, so you'll have to go and search them out yourself. OK, our first year we have selected. What year, Tim? Well, I think we're going to go with 1980 because it's kind of an important year for both of us in some ways. And we were both teenagers um, discovering music. And I, and I kind of realised when I, when I was actually doing one of my rare mini tours last year, I was kind of listening to albums year by year. And the years I had most albums, it was it was weird. 1979, 1980, 1981. I had like 100 mm. plus albums from each of those years. And mm. I think that they were kind of exciting because what you had is a whole host of new bands making very fresh sounds, partly based on the punk revolution. And then you had a lot of the major artists who were still making significant statements. So, you know, it wasn't all Public Image Limited. It was as much Pink Floyd and Fleetwood Mac, all making quite creative, quite edgy, quite searching music. Mm. And so for, for, for me, it's one of the most exciting periods because you get old and new artists somehow kind of refreshed. Yeah, I agree. And as you kind of pointed out, the 80s is when we, you know, most of the music that's become special to us, we discovered during that period in time. And for me, that was between the ages. Literally, it was my teenage years. I became 13 in 1980. So yeah. it's, uh, as you say, it's kind of a watershed uh, kind of era for both of us. And, and we've come up with a list of, well, way too many, but I, I just see how many we can get through, I guess. So um, the first I have on on the list is... Uh, a Van Morrison album. You, you talked about artists that were still kind of at a creative peak, even mm-hmm. though they'd been around in his case for, for getting on for 15 years, you know, at that point in his career, starting out in the mid 60s with them, of course, and and uh, moving through the late 60s and the classic works like Astral Weeks and Moon Darts. And he'd arrived in 1980 at a point where he released uh, this album we're going to talk about, which is an album called Common One. So do you want to tell us about this album, Tim? Well, I guess Common One is an album that's been very special to both of us, really. And for me, along with Veed and Fleece and Astral Weeks, it's my favourite Van Morrison album because I think it's Van Morrison that is the most timeless, spiritual and bizarre. And I think one of the reasons why both of us have 
really sung its praises over the years is because it is so good. It's so fearless. I mean, in, in some ways, it's one of the albums where an artist is at the peak of his abilities and he's completely ignoring the zeitgeist. He's mm. absolutely losing himself in his own magical world. And and I don't think that happened again until maybe Talk Talk at the end of the 80s when Spirit of Eden, Laughing Stock, you know, early 90s, mm. where they're completely ignoring what's around them and making this wonderful, timeless, expressive music. And so Common One fits into that. And secondly, I think why we love it is because it was so criticised at the time. You know, this was a kind of enemy one out of ten album that this Mm. man was not remotely listening to what was happening around him. Mm. It was an indulgent, middle-aged, middle-class um, well, it's I think, you know, it's pretentious, isn't it? But it's pretentious in the best possible sense of the word. And, you know, I always say to people, pretentiousness to me is a very positive thing. If we weren't pretentious, if we weren't reaching for the stars, then nothing would ever move on, would it? So you need these artists sometimes that are completely thinking outside of the box. You, interesting, you mentioned Talk Talk because I see a strong connection between, mm-hmm. you know, this. I mean, you use the word spiritual. There's actually a, a track on common one probably the least interesting track on it ironically but it's a track on the album called spirit and uh, yeah. you know there is that sense of almost a kind of hymnal uh, quality to the music that you do hear very much uh, again in that word again spirit of eden uh, the talk talk yeah. albums from from the late later in the decade the other connection i think both albums have got is there's a link in that mars davis and a silent way you can yeah. hear that they've both listened to that kind of suspended beauty spiritual jazz way. yeah spiritual jazz and developed yeah. from there because on one level you've got this kind of slightly earthy jazzy bluesy chord vocabulary but then you also have this almost classical european hymnal quality in both albums that mm. it's like a fusion of of two elements of spirituality if you like gospel and the church of england mm. but there's something in both of those albums yeah obviously the one um, thing that the van doesn't have that talk talk did have was that avant-garde sensibility i mean this is very, this is very melodic music isn't it it's very harmonic music but i think the one another thing they do have in common is that the idea of duration completely goes out the window like the oh, idea, yeah. the idea that the you know the the conventional pop song needs to be in the three to five minute range completely goes out the window here. On this album, you have two tracks that are over a quarter of an hour each long. Uh, in summertime in England and when heart is open, so that idea that if you if you get into uh, an atmosphere or a space that just feels good, you just let it run its course and you don't cut it off for the sake of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, I think the one thing that separates them, and you're right, I think that both of them are taking their ideas as far as they can go naturally. The difference maybe is that um, Hollis was considerably more of a sonic perfectionist, so it might have taken him two years to to make that A note sound right on the piano whereas obviously Van Morrison at that period was knocking things out Well, and that's um, that's actually that that gives him much closer connection to the world of jazz than Hollis would have to the world of jazz because jazz records were made in an afternoon weren't they I mean that's the that's the beautiful thing you look at an album like Kind of Blue it was made in a couple of three hour sessions or in, oh, a, in a silent way, cut in a day. I mean, editing maybe took a bit lo- longer than that, but it, the sessions took a day. And I think that's true of something like Common One. It was recorded, I think it was recorded in like a week or something, whereas Hollis would take like a year to, you know, to produce 30 minutes of music. Um, yeah. But a wonderful record. And, you know, I think this is a theme we'll come back to time and time again, is that when people 
They're, you know, mm. they seem to seem to be completely unaware of a what the rest of the pop world is, you know, is is doing around them, and b what their fan base wants or expects. Or it's it's maybe that they're not aware; they just don't care. They just don't yeah. care. And I think Van Morrison, and and I think it's that word integrity, isn't it? That's when you get great art. I think I've always believed that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's move on. Uh, so the next the next uh, album on the list. Uh, is who a band that was still relatively new at the time. This is their fourth album. And, of course, we're talking about Talking Heads' Remaining Light, uh, which I believe is Tom York from Radiohead's favourite album of all time, which kind of makes a little bit of sense. So um, uh, this, I think, I think this album most people will know because of the single Once in a Lifetime. But, of course, it's, uh, it's much more than that, isn't it, Tim? Do you want to talk about this album a bit? This is one of your favourites, I know, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's, it's not actually my favourite Talking Heads album, bizarrely. I mean, it's one of those things that... What, um, is, what is your favourite out of interest? Weirdly enough, it's, it's Speaking in Songs. It's the one that comes okay. after this, because Remaining Light is an era-defining album, mm. whereas in some ways, Speaking in Tongues is an era-defined album. You know, it sounds a lot more right. like what's surrounding it. It's a lot more electronic, has the 80s production. But there's something very human and very tender about Speaking in Tongues, which... Remaining Light only really hints at with certain pieces. You know, there are certain moments in um, Houses in Motion or um, Once in a Lifetime where it does become profoundly moving. But generally, it's quite a sort of brittle experience. It fits into that post-punk landscape beautifully while also sort of name-checking fellow cootie, Afrobeat and... Mm. Um, a lot of things like even Parliament and Funkadelic. The guitar solos are just extraordinary, aren't they? I mean, it's Adrian Ballou. Amazing, yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of people think when they hear those guitar solos, they think it's synthesizer or it's Eno doing something, and it's not. It's uh, it's Adrian Ballou with his box of tricks and his pedals doing the most extraordinary twisted uh, guitar solo. And I, and I think that's been a very big... Hearing that record at the time, it's been a very big influence on me that that a solo doesn't have to be a solo. It can be a sound design moment. It can be something that just captures your ears. It's a very hard album to understand exactly where, how they'd arrived at this point, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but I think me. that's that's why it works basically because what you have, as you say, the you know you have the Afro grooves, these extraordinary solos, and tying it all together burns quite surreal but worldly lyrics and occasionally very beautiful affecting melodies you know that that point where Eno joins in on the backing voice for once in a lifetime it's devastating yeah and it's interesting you mentioned Baloo because when I was doing my sort of tour bus listening to the albums of 1980 I was drawing up my list as you all do of your favorites of what you actually liked as much and what you Mm. disliked and the other album, the one that actually was possibly top of my list, which we're not discussing, was Scary Monsters by David Bowie. And of course, that was Fripp, who becomes mm. Baloo's partner in Crimson the next year. And I would say that Fripp's soloing on Scary Monsters and Baloo's soloing on Speaking in Tongues were amongst the most astonishing things mm. I'd heard up to that time. And again, you listen to a track like Fashion, which runs along on a groove, has a great melody, but Fripp is tearing apart at the fabric of the song. Mm. It's No Game is another. So in very different ways, Fripp and Baloo were doing quite similar things on right. Scary Monsters and Speaking we, in Unless tongues. we forget, Fripp is the guitar player on the previous Talking Heads record, isn't he? Fear of Music. And Baloo is the guitar player on the previous Bowie album, Lodger. Oh, right. Oh, of course he is, yeah. And I think the connection between all of those albums, of course, is Eno, isn't it? So now, I know this is a record. Now, when we both drew up our lists, of course, the first thing we did was we both drew up our lists independently of each other. And it was very interesting to see when we, when we, when we kind of conferred 
which albums were common to both lists. And of course, there were a few. Uh, but this album definitely, I think, was one of the first that both of us thought of. Um, still, to me, one of the most magical and beautiful records ever made, which is the first Juriti Column album, The Return of the Juriti Column. Uh, this is a reissue I'm holding in my hands. You can't see it, listeners, but I'm holding a reissue yeah. in my hand. It, because the reason I'm holding it up is because it came in a novelty sleeve that was made <laughs> of sandpaper. Uh, one of Peter Savile's great ideas that when you put this album in your collection, it would destroy the other albums that it sat next to in your collection. Uh, I'm not sure how that worked when it came to the second Juriti Column album. That was the one that went alongside this one. But anyway, uh, kind of backfired at that point. But, you know, a great concept. But anyway, leaving aside the, the cover artwork... It's an album that almost seems to be completely outside of the zeitgeist of whatever is going on musically at this time. This is an album that almost harks back to the sort of early 70s pastoral uh, or something like Penguin Cafe Orchestra. So it's got more yeah. in common with a band like Except it hasn't because it also sounds completely like it's in the same universe as Joy Division or The Cure. And of course, part of that is down to the, the Martin Hannett production. But not only... And of course, Vinnie Riley, who was the, uh, the sole member of the Juriti Column, Juriti Column being a, a collective name for an individual in this case, um, had been in punk rock groups in Manchester, hadn't he? The Nosebleeds, famously. Yeah, yeah. Um, he'd kind of rebelled against that, uh, that kind of like three chords, you don't need to be a proper musician uh, sort of ethic of, of the punk era. And he'd gone back to being a quote unquote proper musician and to me you know again penguin cafe I, I hear mike oldfield in this but i also hear joy division and the cure and magazine and wire uh, it's weird because on one level it does almost connect with the instrumental side of, of somebody like anthony phillips or mike oldfield or, um, or, or ralph towner or, or Ralph Towner, or, or, ECM, or ECM. Yeah. but in a way it couldn't be but I know, and I agree with you but it couldn't be further away from that at the same time could it? it it has a kind of bedroom DIY quality that makes it even more affecting in a way but why it fits in you're right part of it is the Martin Hannett production and part of it I think is the use of that very simple drum machine and of course mm. what Vinnie Riley does and or Hannett whoever on that album it's musically quite beautiful musically quite complex but it doesn't shout at you or tell you that. Yeah, you this know, is not showy music. And I think that's where he, no. would be, he would be very different to a Ralph Towner or a Mike Oldfield, is that there's no, there's no kind of pyrotechnics here at all in the playing. Even though he's a very sensitive, very gifted player, it's, for me, the word is understatement. It's very understated. So, I mean, Tim, did he ever make an album as good as this album again? I mean, we both love Vinnie Riley. I know we've both got most of his albums. Did he ever... Yeah. Is, I mean, in many ways, this, for me, is the Orson Welles syndrome, where first movie... <laughs> can never be bettered as uh, Citizen Kane never and I think in a sense with the Juriti column it's the same King Crimson you could say the same there's something about the way that that first album is so definitive that in a sense it's yeah. the, you spend the rest of your career almost trying to recapture that in a way yes I mean I don't think that any of them were quite as defining you know if you talk to anybody about doing a Juriti column sound it's that first album yeah in some ways that people always draw from yeah Okay, we better move on. Um, this is one of my choices. I don't know if you knew this record before, or maybe you did. Uh, it's, the, it's the second Ryuichi Sakamoto solo record, uh, which is called B2 Unit. Um, 
And for me, this is a masterpiece in a very similar way. The, the Vinnie album is a masterpiece of, of redefining the language of guitar, the musical vocabulary of the guitar at this period of time. This guy was redefining the, the, the musical language of the synthesizer. Now, the synthesizer, of course, in the 70s had been, uh, you know, primarily made famous by people who, who, you know, played with pyrotechnics and people like Rick Wakeman and Keith Emerson, you know, playing these incredibly you know, tricky solos, usually with quite tasteless sounds, uh, in my opinion. But then suddenly you get this influence from coming over from Japan and also the band Japan, the British band Japan, of course. And I know this is one of Richard Barbieri's uh, favourite albums of all time. I think partly because I think I might be wrong, but I think it's almost entirely made using uh, a Prophet 5 keyboard, uh, which is Richard's favourite keyboard as well at the time and actually still is. I don't know. Did you listen to it? What did you think about it? Funny enough, it's one of those albums. Cause obviously, I've quite liked Sakamoto and I've really liked Barbieri, and I'd never actually heard this album. Um, and I could definitely see what Richard had taken from it in certain ways. Obviously, he'd personalised it, and and then it got me thinking about again the use of the synthesizers. You were saying in the late seventies, early eighties, and another album of that year that I actually rather liked, which is very underrated was Vangelis's See You Later, where he becomes a lot more oh, yeah. influenced by yeah, yeah. electropop. But, yeah. but I thought, you know, quite extraordinary yeah. experimental in parts. And also what was interesting about Sakamoto is it's personalising the impersonal. So he actually takes these cold electronic instruments and either his interesting use of sound or harmony, it sounds like Sakamoto. And I was thinking as well, in terms of unique synth sounds, and it made me think of an album of mine, oh, not an album of mine, sorry, an album I really liked in 79, which um, people considered a work of extraordinary excess, which was um, Stevie Wonder's Secret Life of Plants, Yeah, in which he's got a tremendous use of kind of, um, again, sometimes electronic rhythms and very distinctive synths. I mean, there's that thing about the synthesizer use on the album that mm. it's Stevie Wonder, it's mm. nobody else. And I think that's it. That Actually, it's, it's a damn difficult trick to pull off where you are Sakamoto, you are Stevie Wonder, you are Barbieri. You know, it's even one note and you can recognise that player. So the next one on my list is um, uh, Simple Minds, Empires and Dance. Of all the albums on this list that are what you would call post-punk new wave crossover albums, and we have a few on here. In fact, let's quickly go through some of the albums that I think kind of belong together in a way. Magazine's The Correct Use of Soap, Ultravox Vienna, and John Fox Metamatic. We don't have any Gary Newman albums on our list. I think... um I think Telecon was, was that was that year, was it? Which is good. Yeah, actually. which is a great album. I'm not sure why we haven't, but I guess in a way we're covering... This this whole scene uh, of, of, you know, artists that have come out of the crucible of, of you know, of punk rock uh, into something more futuristic. Um, you could be very cynical and say they've gone out and bought a Kraftwerk album and overnight they've kind of, you know, they've kind of mm. uh, redefined themselves as, uh, you know, Teutonic uh, synthesizer bands. But there's also that sense of reaching reaching for the future isn't there um sure. it almost kind of like trashing everything that's gone before with the possible exception of of bowie and and roxy music i think those two touchstones are kind of ever present aren't they in in um in this kind of era uh, of new wave bands you can definitely hear the impact 
that albums like Low and Heroes and, and in the case of Roxy, For Your Pleasure have had on these bands. And also, you know, the, the way that Brian Eno thinks about music uh, has had a, a strong influence on this. But this album, I mean, to me, this album is just uh, genius uh, album. And I say that because Simple Minds, I think, were a band that became... I don't. I think they've been reevaluated in recent years, but they kind of became reviled for a while, didn't they? As a kind of a kind of U two, kind of all mm. also rans in a way. And I think in a, they partly have themselves to blame for that. It almost seemed like they were they were kind of grasping for that arena rock acceptance and that that kind of mainstream success. But there was a period, and it's almost like you have to remind people there was a period in the late seventies, early eighties, when this band were as cutting edge uh, as anyone has been mm. really before or since in terms of creating inventive, experimental, intelligent pop music, uh, both sonically, lyrically and musically. I mean, I don't know, how, how do you feel about this record? I think it's a very good one. I mean, for me, there's a run. I think that's the first of their great albums. Oh, no, Real to Real Cacophony. Disagree. Real okay. to Real Cacophony. <laughs> Previous album is genius. But anyway, it's... it's yeah, yeah, it starts the decade off um, with, as you said, this passion for almost discovering a future. And there was this, and one of the things I loved about that period of pop music is that a lot of it was accidental. A lot of it was very idealistic. You know, we're obviously now in an era where a pop song can be co-written by 10 people and a room of accountants. And I think at that point, you basically had four people in a room trying to find the future. It produced myriad possibilities and um and simple minds definitely started the decade i think brilliantly and for me you know the steve hillage produced albums after that the sister feelings call and sons so of fascination and, um, yeah, yeah sons of fascination and then obviously new gold dream they feel beautifully crafted and they feel very heartfelt um whereas i think your problem is you know when you're getting to the band from the mid 80s onwards it does seem as if they're chasing a different goal it seems as if they're chasing the goal of success that perhaps they've seen bands like U2 that admitted a love for Simple Minds but were finding tremendous international acclaim and of course you know it, it can eat into the psyche of certain musicians we both know certain musicians who haven't been as successful as perhaps they should have been and and I think often great music is created by um how you define yourself against your level of success or, or expectations of success or indeed how you respond to fame. Bowie Scary Monsters is, is quite fascinating because it's somebody in a way almost fighting against his fame while wanting it. So there's a tremendous edge as well yeah, as yeah. accessibility. And I think that Simple Minds from mid-80s onwards, it just seemed as if they ruthlessly pursued that goal of success. Yeah. But they made some great music along the way. Now, and interesting, you talked about people who, you know, have a very interesting relationship to success uh, or not, or unsuccess of the case, maybe. Should we talk about one of these people? Because I think one thing we both found again when we started drawing up our list is that there was a couple of artists that just popped up on every list. And no matter what year we talked about, there was an mm. album by this artist on the list. And one of those artists uh, also made a great record in 1980, as indeed he made great records in 1979, 1978, 1977, 1976, going right back to the early 70s, um, either with Van de Graaf Generator... George Formby. If George Formby. Either with yeah. Van de Graaf Generator or as a solo artist, and that is Peter Hamill. Um, and I know he's one of the, the artists that's most dear to both of us. Um, mm-hmm. And he made, I think, one of his masterpieces in 1980, uh, which is an album called A Black Box. 
Um, but he, you know, but this is the thing. This comes back to what you were originally saying, you know, about the the kind of um, uh, the relationship that certain artists have to mainstream success. Is that Peter Hamill, with the best will in the world, is someone that has never ever crossed over to the mainstream. And I think there are certain periods in his career where you could almost feel like maybe he was trying a little bit more, you know, a bit later in the 80s yeah. with albums like Skin. But certainly right through the 70s, and at this point still in 1980, you feel like he's completely out on his own. He's somehow in this bubble of Peter Hamillness, where he just, if you buy into his world, you've got this incredible catalogue to explore that sounds like no one else. And you kind of pay the price for being that kind of artist don't you but well you do and you don't because obviously gabriel had done the same thing i think i think peter gabriel still even when he's experimenting and this is this is he's pulling off that thing that bowie was always pulling off even when he's yeah. experimenting there's something about it that's still incredibly accessible and incredibly approachable it's interesting because you know you were saying to me if we, if we think of sort of influences around in the late 70s early 80s when i saw adverts in manchester and liverpool even with uh, bands of a progressive band bent or a new wave bent or a punk bent three names repeatedly came up even more so than Eno, talking heads and craft work at the time in the northwest hamill gabriel bowie and there were so many vocalists of that era um who credited hamill gabriel and bowie as being their major influence but of course there's there's a great disparity between the success levels of Bowie, Hamill and Gabriel. And what was interesting is that all three of them produced great work in 1980, which managed to, on one level, have the craft, commitment, intelligence of their careers, if you like, you know, what they built up, their um, pool of knowledge, while also perfectly colliding with the era that those mm. albums were released mm. in. And it's an interesting question as to why... You know, because I think Scary Monsters and Gabriel 3 are actually quite experimental albums, are quite For extraordinary sure. albums. they are. And yet they connect, whereas obviously Black Box was always much more the aficionado's choice. And, you know, vocally, there isn't that much between all three of them in some ways. But there's obviously clearly enough, enough that it... Yeah. I think it, this is actually a very good moment to mention this record that you put on your list... And I want you to convince me, Tim, that this is a good record because <laughs> of, of all the albums on the list, this is the one I would honestly yeah. say is just not a very good record. And uh, uh, it, it's um, <laughs> <laughs> I've just for the people listening at home, I've just held up. Uh, we are actually on Zoom here so we can see each other. I've just held the album cover up. Um, and, you know, we said we weren't going to talk about the Beatles, but I think we're making an exception in this case because this is uh, this is obviously a, a, an ex-member of the Beatles. This is Paul McCartney's. Mm. McCartney 2 record. Now, I have it in my collection, and I'd be the first to admit that McCartney's first solo album, which was made 10 years earlier than this, is a classic. I love McCartney mm. 1. McCartney 2 is not a classic, is it? Let's face it, Tim. Right, convince me this is a good record. Convince it. Well, for me, and obviously I was a McCartney fan at the time, and, and a Beatles fan, and, uh, you know, London Town, I thought, was a beautiful record. And in some ways, that was almost like a latter-day psychedelic We're talking about this London. record, Tim. London we're Town. We're talking about McCartney 2. <laughs> Not talking about London Town. We're talking about McCartney 2. What is it so, you like about it? Okay, it's got a couple of lovely ballads on it. I'll be the first to admit, War Waterfalls is a lovely Waterfalls melody. Waterfalls is one of the most beautiful ballads he's ever written. I think well, it's written. I mean, in some ways, I think it's his kind of DIY album. That it is a DIY album. Back yeah. to the Back to the Egg was not the best Wings album, and you kind of felt that the Wings experiment had maybe met its end on that. 
for me, what's interesting about Wings is that Bound on the Run, London Town are two of the most focused. No, no, stop and talking back, about other albums. Talk about McCartney too. You're just back you're deflecting. To, back to the <laughs> back to the egg was quite an excessive statement. And I think with McCartney too, he was going back to the beginnings of his career. It was him with some instruments For knocking sure. off songs. Yeah, I can see and that. And I think yeah. that it then has I the like technology. the idea of it. <laughs> now, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm yeah. going to have to look on Wikipedia here right. just to refresh my knowledge. Okay. L- I mean, listen, I did listen to it. Are, are you saying bogey wobble isn't good? Um, okay. <laughs> Waterfall Temporary is Secretary. Temporary, sec- Temporary Secretary is like Square Pusher 15 years earlier. No, it's like your, um, it's like your dad. Try- Temporary Secretary is like your dad trying to be craft work. Dark Room yeah. is Nine Inch Nails in their infancy. Great track. No, it isn't. I'm not saying, look, to be fair, I'm not saying it's classic. What I'm saying is I think he was rediscovering his enthusiasm for making music on his own and he was coming up with unusual things. You know, as we were saying earlier, when people like Van Morrison are willful, you listen to a track like Dark Room, you listen to a track like Temporary Secretary, you don't make those if you're actually aiming to make number one singles. He's clearly experimenting with technology, making interesting sounds. And he can't help himself but produce beautiful melodies like Waterfalls or... He's still writing great tunes, I'll give you that. And, and, I, you know, and I think you're right. And I'm playing devil's advocate in a sense here because, as I say, one of the things I like about this period is that there are certain artists who very much embrace that DIY aesthetic and did something really fascinating as a consequence of that. So yeah. it, it, was tra- it was almost a rebellion against the bombast of the 70s and the slickness of the 70s, which, of course, ironically, was to come again. As you move through the 80s, things get progressively more slick again, don't they? But there seems to be a yeah. period in, in the immediate aftermath of punk rock and new wave music when even artists like, who probably an artist like Paul McCartney would have been considered an old fart at the time. I mean, he'd been yeah. making records for almost 20 years by that time, although that's a blink of an eye in these days. But at the time... He would have been seen as a you know part of the old guard, and even he, uh, and along with people like Gabriel and Hamill, are are going back to the drawing board in a sense, and, and yeah, thinking I, thinking about what they should be doing with their gift, with their musical gift. And I think the closest companion, you know, in the albums we're talking about, nineteen eighty, probably is Hamill's A Black Box. In that McCartney too and Hamill A Black Box were just put together for the sake of putting together music at home, in their homes. Yeah, yeah, in yeah, their homes. Yeah. And so I think there's a certain. Um, <coughs> comparison there so you know i wouldn't make a claim for it being great but i think that it's interesting and it's um a great testament to an artist who still wants to make music and still getting a thrill from music and you know some people have made a claim that dark room predates drum and bass that it has accidentally aspects of what people like goldie and Others are going to be actually. Yeah, that, that's, that's stretching, it, stretching it a bit. Some yeah, anyway, people yeah, say some that. People, some people. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah I, I mean, no, you're right. I mean, I think it's, 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 a fascinating, it's a fascinating document from this era that an artist yeah. that arguably is the biggest male, you know, solo artist of all time uh, should have made a record that is as nuts. I mean, it's nuts, isn't it? This record is yeah, nuts. Yeah, absolutely. And some yeah. of it is, is frankly shit. But some of it is also not. And I think, but that, you know, I think there's a sense that, you know, it's more fascinating to go, to go back and listen to an album like this than something that's much more corporate and, and sort of finely tuned and finely chiseled, you know, in, made in big studios with very much mainstream market in mind. Those records sometimes are, are less interesting, even if they're perhaps arguably musically superior, they're less interesting than these kind of noble failures. Uh, so yeah, I, I, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's move on. Um, I think um, 
I want to talk about uh, another thing that was going on at this time, which uh, I think you were only very, very peripherally into, but I was into in a big way because I was 12 at the time, (laughs) which is 1980 was the year of the new wave of British heavy metal, which in a way couldn't be further away from all of the other music we've talked about. But Mm -hmm. what it does have in common with some of the records we talked about is that it's very much come out of the crucible again of punk rock hasn't it um it has a roughness and an edge to it that separates it from the heavy rock music of the early to mid 70s and the record i've Mm. picked to talk about which i still think well actually i would have maybe picked the first iron maiden album but on the basis that we wanted to avoid the as much as possible the the you know the 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 classic artists that have been discussed and discussed ad infinitum i've instead gone for diamond head um and their 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 demo album, Lightning to the Nations, um, mm-hmm. which was an album they, I don't know if you remember this, but they essentially made it a home, pressed it up on white label. It didn't even have a cover. It just came in a plain white sleeve. And they sold it through taking out advertising in what at the time was the, was the newly launched Kerrang! magazine. Yeah. It ended up with them getting a major record deal with, with the MCA records. But actually, they never really reached artistically. They never reached the heights of that first demo album, which I think it ended up, but every single, single song on that record was covered by Metallica, you know, in their early days. Mm. Uh, it was a massive, massive record for, for Metallica. But again, a band that didn't, didn't achieve any mainstream success of their own, but have become increasingly influential on a, gen, on a new generation of, you know, the Metallicas and the bands that followed them. Mm. Sorry, what were you going to say? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, for me, I was never really a, a, a great fan of the new wave of British heavy metal, but I saw a lot of the bands because when I was sort of 14, 15, 16, they'd be playing in, in the local bar. On that kind of pub circuit, they were excellent. It wasn't necessarily my music, but they were utterly fantastic. And the audience was fully with them, and especially the track Am I Evil? You know, you'd have 300 Northerners going when it said, Am I Evil? And they'd go, Yes, I am. In that voice. Oh, yes. Yes, I am, sir. Yes, yes. I do believe, sir. I I am rather evil. Yes, and I think it was... um, But people would, you know, call and response. And and they were a fantastic band in that context. And strangely, a friend made me see them when they were playing at Manchester Apollo a couple of years later. (laughs) And it was an an interesting example of a band who suddenly seemed out of their context. I mean, it wasn't helped by the fact that it was kind of half full. Whereas in that pub environment that kind of Mm. sweaty, cramped Mm. environment, it worked amazingly. Mm. In the larger uh, environment, it just didn't communicate. Yeah, it felt like bricklayers Um, in in spandex, as we we sometimes call it. Yeah, (laughs) you sometimes, sometimes, I mean, obviously Maiden managed to to sort of make that transition very well, didn't they? But a lot of other, yeah, a lot of other bands didn't. They just looked ridiculous when they put on the posh clothes and were up on the big stage. They looked slightly ridiculous and out of their depth, whereas they were perfectly at home in the sort of small working man's clubs. And I think, maybe you're right, Diamond Head were one of those bands, yeah. And, you know, made, again, in that context, very strong. And I think their first album, I think what they did um, right, their first album probably is the only new wave of heavy metal album where I think that it competes with the heavy metal greats. And partly because what it it's doing, as you said earlier, it's combining the raw energy of punk and new wave with their enthusiasms for classic rock, classic metal and classic prog. Because you can hear aspects of Jethro Tull certainly in that first Iron Maiden album Um, but they also had a great visual identity I think they had better material a great visual identity and 
there's something about it where it almost seems built to last. But there's something about the music. I mean, I was 12 years, 12 years old at the time. It definitely appealed to me. Um, it's interesting that you could also, you probably remember, because everyone watched Top of the Pops at that time. You remember that you would, you would remember like me, that you could actually have on the same episode of Top of the Pops, you could have wheels of Saxon coming on doing wheels of steel mm. in their spandex with Peter Gabriel doing Games Without Frontiers with Bowie doing Ashes to Ashes and then at the same yeah. time whatever the you know the real mainstream candy floss pop was of, of, of the time whatever the Wombles uh, or whatever it was well I think it's one of the fascinating things isn't it about music television from that time that even Top of the Pops that was actually dictated by charts and by sales was phenomenally eclectic and you get that even more so with Old Grey Whistle Test and The Tube and so on that I often find that within sort of half an hour of Old Grey Whistle Test or Tube or Top of the Pops from say 1980 there's more diversity than on 24 hours of music television now absolutely it wasn't wasn't stripped and streamed it was accidental in some ways and it was enthusiastic and and I I loved that being exposed to different types of music. You know, I, I've never felt particularly embarrassed that I'm well aware of American mainstream soul or British new wave of heavy metal. You know, all of this stuff is... There's no such um, thing there's, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. I, I really believe that. Um, absolutely. I, I think maybe when you're a teenager, you, you know, you can, you can argue there are certain things that you shouldn't be seen to be listening to or whatever. But listen, we, we should grow out of that. Really, we should grow out of that. And I really yeah. believe at this time in my life that there is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. I will very happily enthuse to you, and I probably have, about old appearance old Rubet songs Rubet's appearing on top of the pops in 1974 some of those songs are amazing the production the quality of the songwriting and yes it's cheesy and yes it's kitchen yes it's very much the candy floss end of mainstream pop music Mm. but there is an art to it that I just don't hear in contemporary pop it's all far too cookie cutter chiseled it has no personality it sounds like it was written by a computer mainly because it was written by a computer, mm. by a computer algorithm. But, but that's the great thing. You know, again, one band we've not discussed, actually, who were, you know, at the commercial pomp in 1980, and I think producing great music, Adam and the Ants. Yeah. Uh, you know, once more. We should have Kings of the World fin- Frontier on the list, really, shouldn't we? It's not, but... Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, phenomenally inventive yeah. production, music that kind of blended the sort of the beginnings of rock and roll with Afrobeat, mm. with a fantastically futuristic 1980s pop sheen. And the thing is that, you know, that was, again, it was the vision of a band or a vision of a person as opposed to a vision of a committee. Okay, so the next record uh, I think we should talk about, Tim, is one that, again, was on both of our lists. Simply one of the greatest records of all time and the the best Cure record, 17 Seconds. The second Cure record uh, just has a sound to it that, to me, sounds like it's beaming in from some other dimension. It's, it's, It's... it's archetype. It's the archetypal Cure record, in the sense that it was the first record where they kind of found their sound. It has a kind of empty, parched, ghostly quality to it. Partly because of obviously his voice, but also because of the sparseness of the production, the way the drums um, have got that very kind of dry, arid quality. There's no reverb on this album, so it has this very spectral quality to it and the songs are just so good i mean a forest obviously a lot of people will know a forest Mm. is one of the cures you know sort of most famous songs which is on this record 
But everything, Play For Today, In Your House is one. Uh, one of my first ever bands, I was in a band when I was 12 called Amber Dawn. And we used to do a cover of In Your House. Can you believe it? Mm. Um, so anyway, what do you feel about this record, Tim? It sounds of its time and out of its time. And the cover beautifully evokes that kind of hazy sense of mystery that envelops it. And there is a real sense of kind of loneliness, isolation, um, and as you say, I'd bought the previous Cure album and it had a couple of good songs, but it was a band finding its identity. It was a band still, in some ways, they were they were a curious band because you could hear that they were coming out of that quite burnished late 1970s post-punk. There's a certain aspect of wire to their early sound. There's a certain aspect of conventional punk but also that more spectral element is being introduced on certain tracks. I think it's 10.15 on a Saturday night yeah. is it, from the first album, yeah, yeah, yeah. which hints at where 17 seconds is going to go completely. And A Forest was, you know, it was um, a, a very haunting single that certainly at a certain time of my life I played a lot. And, um, and the album was, a, was almost a beautiful album-length investigation into that emotional and sonic state it's got it's it's got a consistency of sound hasn't it it kind of I mean, it's very short Absolutely. it's a short record and it's a 35 40 minutes long it maintains that atmosphere from beginning to end now i know because we talked about this before we sometimes like albums like that we love you know i love albums that are diverse i love albums that are all over the place i mean one of the things you could say mm. about the whatever i said about it one thing you can say about the mccartney two album is that no track is like any other track on that record i mean it's just complete totally, it's yeah. all over the shop but this album is an example of an album that is completely consistent from beginning to end in tone and atmosphere one of the things is that you know and i've still got some of these old um melody makers and enemies and sounds is that the cure were one of those bands there were a few artists late 70s early 80s that the press didn't quite trust because they felt that they were reconfigured prog rock bands or reconfigured classic rock bands you know so they would quite often be because you, you may not have bought the press at that point there were quite a lot of quite negative articles with connotations that actually they were older frauds trying mm. to get in on the new scene. Mm. Um, and an interesting thing with, again, one of the albums that um, you put on your list that I wouldn't have put on mine, Yes Drama, came out in the same week as Ultravox Vienna. And certainly, I think it was the melody maker they had on one side, Yes Drama. And it was the idea of, yes, you know, embracing the spirit of the age and new wave and electropop. And it's Ultravox embracing the spirit of progressive. And they had mm. this kind of... Well, um, it, it, is, it, it is... Uh, it, sorry to interrupt you. It is fascinating to me how time has, in a way, uh, revealed a lot more of those connections. I mean, I've always said that when you listen now to... Uh, another album from is is closer Joy Division's closer 1980 I think it is yeah 1980 I, yeah. I did I didn't put it in the list because I think Joy Division are another band that have been almost over analysed and over discussed so I think one of the things that's fascinating to me is now when you listen to an album like Closer or you listen to an album like 17 Seconds it sounds much more. Um, of a part with something like Dark Side of the Moon than it does Nevermind the Bollocks. The, 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 yeah. the, the sort of existential lyrics, the sort of angsty lyrics, the very kind of almost, you know, reaching for those kind of um, uh, high ideals with the music and the space and the atmosphere and the sound, the slightly ponderous rhythms from time to time that you, in the best possible sense of the word, it's very much a Floydian trope. I think The Cure have definitely got that and Joy Division absolutely have got that too. 
let's two more albums. I think we should definitely talk about. We have to talk about the specials. Um, uh huh. And of course, nineteen eighty, as you correctly pointed out, I thought it was eighty one. What a terrible, terrible error to have made. Uh, <laughs> it was actually nineteen eighty. More specials. The second specials album. Now this is yeah, yeah. this is my childhood. This band is my childhood because when I went to secondary school in nineteen seventy eight. All of the kids in my class, 11, 12 years old, were listening to the two-tone bands. It was all about madness, specials, the beats, selector. And specials, of course, uh, were, were the, you know, the, the sort of the leaders of that scene, if you like, in the sense that two-tone was the label that Jerry Dammers had set up. And I love the first album the, from 1979. It's an amazing record. But there's something sonically about the second album that is really special. And it's interesting when we when we talked about this, I kind of went on Wikipedia and I read up about the album, things I'd, you know, mm-hmm. I'd forgotten about the record. And people talk about it being an influence on trip hop. And I was like, really? And it, it never, never occurred to me that there would be a connection between what the specials were doing and what bands like Massive Attack and Portishead were doing, uh, you know, much later on in the 90s. And then I listened again to the record and I thought, my God, absolutely, I hear it now. It's the Mm. use of, I think it's mainly in the use of those kind of dub techniques, um, a kind of eerie quality that I very much associate, particularly with Portishead and Massive Attack. And I definitely hear it in songs, particularly songs like International Jet Set and The Man at CNA. Um, What sort of, I think, relates it to Portishead and Massive Attack beyond that kind of dub is the fact that they use easy listening elements yes, yeah, they yeah, use yeah. easy easy listening yeah. in quite a twisted queasy. way and well it's it's queasy listening yeah. isn't it this was very much jerry dammer's vision that you know from what i can gather he had been to america he heard a lot of music in airport lounges and in lifts and he wanted to recreate this music that he was hearing um on the american tour and the rest of the band thought it was diabolically bad from what i can gather and so you've got these kind of things pulling and pushing and tearing apart and that's what makes it interesting perhaps that you know at the core of it you have actually quite a banal reference point of course the same for music for airports brian eno where it's that um once more taking the banality of muzak and Mm. transforming it into something quite human and i think that um Although it's a very different album from Music for Airports, there's a similar motivation of yeah. humanising something that is completely inhuman and plastic. Um, and so the album has got a very strange sound. And, that, and a lot of those two-tone bands, you know, Madness were a wonderful singles band. Um, but this is an album. You know, this is very much an album. Whereas I think the first Specials album is a great collection of songs. It's a great collection of singles. It's not necessarily an album experience this fits the album years for me. i think i think yeah i mean you mentioned madness and and obviously at the time madness and the specials were almost synonymous for a while they were the two leading lights from the two towns two-tone stable but they could not be more different in a way could they i mean mm. the, although madness had a, a couple of songs with more social conscience to them songs like gray day and cardiac arrest they always seemed like they had this very zany fun aspect, whereas the specials seemed like this sort of very, you wouldn't want to meet them in a dark night, on a dark night in an alleyway on your own, would you? They, no, they seem quite dangerous. Some, 
quite yeah, yeah. something forbidding yeah about a bit like the stranglers there's something quite forbidding about their image their photographs yeah quite how they came across in interviews yeah know. and they all seem to hate each other as well which kind of it seemed to <laughs> seem to it's give like early no man in that respect i think so talking <laughs> talking about hate and this brings me nicely to the final record i want to talk about because this is another thing that was happening in 1980 that we haven't touched on in any way really uh, until now and i know it's not a scene you're particularly into but as you know i am um mm-hmm. And it's the it's the scene the industrial music scene now industrial music just to, to give listeners who maybe don't know to give them a, a very quick history lesson about it. industrial music was uh, was started really with a band called Throbbing Gristle in 1976 uh, they ter- they 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 termed the phrase industrial music and their music was all about let's just say an obsession with everything that was negative and everything that was dark and a a way to kind of channel that through music. Um, and it's one of those counterintuitive things where you think, well, something that's got so much dark energy and so much hate in it, how can that be enjoyable? I, I could have picked any number of albums from this year. Uh, I've picked one by a group called White House uh, called Total Sex. And uh, it's the second album. And uh, I think I characterized it to you as basically, Tim, didn't I, as a man screaming from the bottom of a well over some sort of primitive synthesizer of improvisations add a pneumatic drill to that and you kind of got it that, yeah. and that's kind of it that is what it sounds like i absolutely love it i found it very hard over the years to articulate to people why i love noise music and industrial music it's um the only way i can really um intellectualize explain it is that there's something about industrial music that connects to me with ambient music. Now, it's interesting. You were talking about the Brian Eno album and the specials mm-hmm. having a connection. I think there's a connection between Brian Eno and noise music and, and industrial music as well, in the sense that this is music that just fills the room with a single feeling. Why would anyone want to listen to the sound of a pneumatic drill? A good question. Someone screaming over. And I'm not, I'm struggling to explain to you why. Yeah, it's a difficult thing for me. I mean, it's just something I cannot connect to emotionally, really. I mean, it's, you know, I think generally speaking, we kind of share maybe 75% of taste. And this is one of the things that, that I've never really got. I mean, I'm not averse to extreme noise, extreme hate, extreme expression of violence in music, but I've always quite liked it. <laughs> When it's contrasted, and for me, the closest comparison to this is how I feel about free jazz, that um, I cannot bear free jazz, but then actually I love free jazz in context. So, you know, certain artists, whether it be Soft Machine or even David Sylvian, have used aspects of atonality and free jazz, but it's been in some ways mitigated with beauty, with melody. And so with industrial... I've kind of liked that level of aggression and violence and sheer noise when there's a sense of relief. And you get that maybe in the music of Scott Walker, you know, later Scott Walker. It's almost industrial drilling in your head, but then it's broken up with the most amazing beams of light and beauty. Um, I said, I kind of love these things um, in context. And, And obviously, you know, I've really quite liked the idea that you know, with the two of us, I think we we liked anything from avant-garde to pure pop. You know, obviously, on the same show to discuss the Rubettes and White House is the sort of thing I like. 
Okay, Tim. So I think we'll call it a day there because uh, we've talked uh, about a lot of albums and, and I'm going to have to edit this down from the 17 hours of footage that we now have. So let's let's conclude by both picking one album that we feel is... Um, well, maybe we can pick one album that is our personal favourite and then an album that we feel in many ways captures the zeitgeist of that year more than any other. So in that sense, what would be... What would be your favourite and what would be your most significant album from that year? Well, I'd actually go for three. My favourite album of the year is Scary Monsters. I just think it's a brilliant fusion of what Bowie does best. In terms of the most influential or important, it would be two, really, Remain in Light and Gabriel 3. I think Remain in Light captures that zeitgeist, whereas Gabriel 3, I think, perhaps more so than any album of 1980, anticipates what's going to happen in terms of sonic processing you listen to the way in which the drums are gated you listen to the way in which the voices are processed the electronics in the background you can hear the beginnings of so much production of that era you know by 1986 one of the things that's interesting about 1980 is as we've said there is such a variety of sound processes such a variety of genres and i think what was interesting about say 1985 86 is whether it's the 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 Water Boys, Peter Gabriel, or the Cars, or even Christa Berg, there was a remarkably similar approach to production, a remarkably similar use of the same instruments. Whereas what's great about 1980 um, is that anything goes. Okay, I'm going to go for, I think my favourite record from this year, uh, the, the ones we've talked about, well, actually it's hard for me to pick between the Juriti Column, The Cure and the Prince album. I'll, I'll pick for you The Cure. Well, yeah, it's a great record. I absolutely love it. I love it. There are albums that I can never get tired of. I keep coming back to. Great. Well, uh, thank you very much for listening to this, our first attempt at a a podcast of the album years. Um, And uh, I hope if you've you've enjoyed it, you'll share it with some other people. And uh, we'll be back next time with another year. I think we're going to do one from the 70s. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. And uh, say goodbye, Tim. Bye bye. (laughs) 